Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined again by Brian Moses. How you doing, Brian? Pretty good. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you. Great having you on the show last time. We discussed so many interesting topics. We went back and forth afterwards. So like, there was a couple of little audio problems that we had, but hopefully this time we'll, we'll rectify those. But going around, we say we've really enjoyed it and it'd be great to kind of, you know, maybe discuss some of these bits that maybe the audio didn't come out as great again and maybe foray into more stuff. It'd be really cool and interesting, maybe if your, your take on EEC RAM, what it's there for, what's your opinions on it and what was the benefit of using such a technology? Well, uh, ECC RAM is, uh, the ECC stands for error checking, error checking and correction. Um, and what happens is there's extra hardware on each, each stick of RAM that stores and encrypts what you're writing to the RAM and then reconciles it against itself on a continual basis. So, you know, if, uh, you have a, a defect in the RAM or something environmental like radiation or Cosmic rays from outer space cause a bit in your memory to flip from a zero to one unexpectedly. What it can do is it can, it can catch those errors and then it can correct for them. So, you know, in, uh, you know, systems where, where downtime is, is not an option or you're handling critical, critical data of any kind, you frequently see people using ECC RAM to protect themselves against these kind of hardware and environmental issues. You know, since I build a lot of, you know, home lab type equipment, servers that you use at your house, I am not a huge proponent of ECC RAM. The technology is, it's the best. I mean, that's the, if you want uptime and stability and you think your data is critical, then ECC RAM is clearly the choice for you. What we've found is... You know, over the years, memory quality has gotten better and better. So those, those hardware defects, those other things that, that were re- the real reason that ECC came about in the first place, they're just not as common anymore. And you've got, you know, tools and abilities to put RAM through paces to try and find, you know, if you've got a defective stick of RAM. And in, in the end, what you can wind up doing is, saving quite a bit of money. The ECC RAM itself isn't expensive. You know, it's an it's an extra chip, so a stick of ECC RAM tends to be about 10% more than something equivalent that's non-ECC. But where you find the huge price difference is in the motherboards. You're talking about enterprise-grade workstation and server hardware, and that comes with an enterprise grade price tag. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty significant bump. I've always said, especially, you know, for like a, a NAS machine that I think that that money's better spent somewhere else to protect your data. You know, like a, an offsite backup or any kind of backup, but an external hard drive that you give to a buddy on a, on a monthly basis and rotate, you know, back and forth. Something like that, I would think, would be a better spend, spending of money 
so that you can protect yourselves from other kinds of dangers, like yourself. You know, with all of my computers, I am I am my own biggest enemy. So what what can I do to protect myself from myself? And ECC RAM just doesn't do that nearly as well. You mentioned last time as well. You know, all RAM used to be EEC RAM. Then is that right? In the kind of the history of the lineage, and then the technology has gradually got better that we don't require it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it used to be that the the quality of the memory was so was so poor that you just had to have ECC RAM. It wasn't. It was expected that you would have all sorts of parity errors. So they had they had parity in ECC RAM, and as everything's improved as the manufacturing has improved as the the technology has improved fewer and fewer machines are using ecc ram so with ecc ram then like you say that you the motherboard and things like that so kind of what what is it well, why then do, do, does the motherboard need to be changed is it because of the fact that it's got this extra chip that then it's having to start doing extra checks and things like that and and that obviously is the price bump as opposed to just the memory itself yeah i think it it's a it's not a matter of compatibility. I mean, I think that the physical layout is the same of the ECC DIM and the non-ECC DIM. But I think it's the, you know, the underlying motherboard's chipset, which is, which is different. It needs to support being able to use that ECC RAM and put it through its paces. And with that, you know, just the, your average consumer grade chipset, your motherboard's chipset just doesn't support ECC RAM. You actually have released a blog post, I think it was a while back actually now, where you know you were explaining kind of, you know, why you don't propose EEC RAM. And it's interesting because looking at my build that I'm currently kind of you know, specking out at this time, it's, it is a price bump and it is a significant price bump to say, oh, I want the memory. You know, obviously, you'd, you know, if it's an always on machine and, and you really want to kind of try and do the greatest and the best you can get at this time. But in a price budget, it really does hike up those prices of certain bits, such as the motherboard and the memory. And it is weighing up. But you say, like, it's probably just better off having a backup, you know, for all other problems as well to kind of, you know, as opposed to, you say, this once-in-a-lifetime bit flip that could occur. Yeah. When you're building a, a server at home, your cost is always going to is always going to be your first, your first driving factor. Unless you're, like, some uber-wealthy guy. It's just, it's always going to come into into effect and it always seems like there's other ways to spend that same money that has more benefit than just than just ecc ram obviously i was speaking about kind of you know what i'm looking into doing for my kind of server setup and and one of the things that as the you know prices is a very big consideration is to kind of look into the second hand market obviously thing that you want is you want the you know the greatest you want ec ram and you want all these kind of things the on processors and you go on ebay and you start looking through all this old hardware and you start seeing these amazing setups and these amazing racks and things like that and it's you know they're very enticing prices i'm just wondering kind of what you know, for you, what, what what's your experience buying secondhand hardware, and also what are the kind of things to look out for? I I'm a big fan of secondhand hardware. I wound up, you know, on my own on my own home lab server, I wound up buying two uh, Xeon E5 2670 CPUs, the first version. You know, there's there's a drop in replacement for those CPUs, and I'm assuming that lots of lots of corporations out there, lots of Server support guys are going out and, you know, taking out one CPU and putting in another CPU or, or something similar. Or they probably have an end of life where they expect, you know, hey, this starts, we start using this on this day and then X number of days later, we need to retire that hardware. And there's a secondhand market for all of that. And home users are 
probably ideal for like a home lab server. And if if you're willing to accept the risk, I think it's a I think it's a fantastic gamble. All hardware purchases, I think, are are a gamble. I've bought enough hardware that's defective right from the manufacturer that I know that just because it's brand new doesn't mean it's it's any better than something that might be on the on the secondhand market. But with secondhand hardware, you don't get you know the nice manufacturer's warranty. You don't get a you know a call center of, of folks that you get to call on a twenty four hour basis. There's a lot of things that you don't get. It's just going to be, you know, either it works or it doesn't, and you're on your own figuring out what exactly is wrong. And if you're willing to accept that risk, then there's a huge reward in the various amounts of, you know, enterprise-grade hardware that is entering the secondhand market through being sold off by the companies that don't need it anymore. Yeah, because because that's the thing. Like I was, it, you know, you can crawl through eBay and you can spend hours just kind of looking through all this stuff, kind of you know dreaming. Oh, that'd be great to have this, this, and this. And, and I'm just wondering, do you have any do's and don'ts on buying secondhand hardware? Kind of, you know, is, are there things that you would more be more willing to buy in a secondhand market as opposed, or is it really kind of anything you see? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've actually got a rule on which components I would or wouldn't buy on the secondhand market. When I did it, I bought. Just the CPUs. And then I bought a brand new motherboard and I bought brand new RAM. But I didn't even really shop for the RAM or motherboard in the secondhand market at all. So, you know, that might just be a, a hole in my thinking and not necessarily something that, that the listeners should follow along with. As long as you're comfortable in your ability to, let's say, kind of burn in and benchmark the machine after you've built it to the point where you've You've got confidence in its ability. I would say buy as many components as you're comfortable with off of the secondhand market. But what you'll what you'll probably find, and what I found, was that I wanted a, a motherboard of a certain form factor to sit to fit in a certain case, and those those motherboards were fewer and farther between on the secondhand market. Mostly, what I was finding out there was the great big one one U rack server mount motherboard and that that wouldn't have fit in the cases that i was using but that that's certainly not to say that the motherboard that i would have used wasn't out there i just didn't readily find it that is my kind of thinking you know for it too as well is that you know i'm I'm more i would say i'm more leaning towards now kind of the idea of experimenting looking into ebay at least um you know you can can get these off the server floor essentially kind of ones that you know these are fully built systems and I've been reading up a little bit, and one of the negatives they do say about maybe a system like that, maybe like getting an old Dell Tower server, is that, you know, like obviously if, if something goes wrong, you're paying a premium maybe on the replacement parts because it's a server-grade hardware as it is. But, you know, these are kind of the rolling of the dice, as you mentioned, that you kind of have to deal with because of the fact that you are getting maybe a good deal out of it. Exactly, yeah. And especially especially when you start working with non-standard equipment you know like a like a dell or whatever they're they're just proprietary enough that you're going to have to potentially get replacement parts directly from them and pay like you're saying a a hefty premium or you'll have to decide hey i think the motherboard's bad and the motherboard only fits this particular case so why don't i just buy a replacement motherboard and case and move all of the bits into my new case 
That's yeah, absolutely. That's another thing kind of going through my mind is that, you know, maybe just taking the bits you want because I've noticed other things such as like, I mean, some of the Dell cases like tower servers, which, you know, have like obviously hard drive caddies and things, but you have to buy the hard drive caddies separately. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, can I buy maybe secondhand hardware caddies or, you know, in case maybe there's not and I will have to go to Dell. So maybe moving them to another case, which is a little less kind of proprietary and I can just, you know, work out what I want bits, you know, maybe I'll buy new hard drives and then I'll just take the bits I want and maybe put it into a new motherboard. You mentioned, obviously, the burning tests there, and we we did discuss them last episode a bit, you know, kind of like looking at mem tests and, you know, your CPU, stuff like that. Do do you, I suppose you would spend probably a bit longer, do you reckon, when you actually, when you've initially built the system using secondhand hardware, just to make sure that it is 100% working as you expect? Um, I don't know that I would spend extra time on it. I'm I'm equally distrustful of new hardware and used hardware. So my testing of both would probably be about the same. But I mean, yeah, you could, I mean, you could burn it in, you know, let's say, you know, four hours of maxing out the CPU was enough for you. You could do, you could do six instead. I mean, more would certainly increase your chances of finding any kind of issues that are related to, you know, heat or, or usage. And uh, uh, moving on from there then, so you've you know, kind of looking into the hardware for buying it brand new or buying it secondhand and, and kind of deciding on what hardware you want and kind of comparing hardware components. And, and that's, again, something this week I'm spending a lot of time with, you know, working out the verses and stuff. And you can have a lot of fun with pegging one CPU against another and seeing what, you know, what kind of wins out. I ideally wanted initially, I wanted, oh, yeah, it'd be great to have maybe a Xeon processor with EEC memory and stuff like that. And, and I don't know whether my my use case really warrants it. And, and actually, I don't know whether my actual use case will actually benefit from having such a technology because typically it'll be, it's a NAS box, but it'll, it'll be doing streaming a lot of Plex stuff. Um, it'll be using the new like high efficiency video codec stuff. So that again will require more power. Uh, you know, in that kind of case, maybe, you know, having more cores isn't the benefit as opposed to having a couple of quicker cores. I'm just wondering what, what kind of systems like benchmark systems, I know you mentioned like the Passmark system last time and what other systems in general, you know, with RAM, with hard drives, with with any component really of the, of you know of a server of a of a PC build, do you you know factor into your decision making? Well, usually what I wind up doing is kind of like you talked about is I write out you know or think about what are what are my use case scenarios for the hard drives. So like you mentioned streaming, and anytime you're talking about media, you're also talking about storage. So you're your use case scenario is probably going to be a lot like mine for my most recent NAS build, where I said, I want, you know, storage. Storage was my number one. I mean, I want a lot of it, and I want I want redundancy in it. And then, like you said, you wanted to do streaming, and so I went out and said, well, you know, I'd be streaming with Plex, so, you know, what are Plex's hardware requirements? And they've, they've kind of got a guideline on how much CPU you need per stream, you know, what your what your pass mark score needs to be for one stream of, you know, 1080p video. And then I kind of, well, I said, well, you know, I've got three TVs in the house and two computers, so, and there's only two of us here, so maybe two or three streams would be enough. And, well, what else do I want to do with this this computer? Well, maybe, maybe host a virtual machine. I've got a lot of virtual machines that I'd like to build out for different projects around the house. So gathering all of those use case scenarios, you can, you can sit down and you've got a list of things that you want to use it for. And then you just 
I usually just wind up prioritizing those things. You know, what's, what's most important on that list? And then, you know, move that up to the list and make sure that you dedicate a big chunk of your budget towards whatever that, you know, whatever your top priority is and then kind of work through it. And I've found that that helps me, you know, kind of get away from all the nitty gritty details. You could really go down a rabbit's hole looking at all the specs and all the possible possible different things that you could do and get way far away from what it is you're actually trying to accomplish. No, absolutely. I, I think I'm, I'm at that point kind of, okay, I've got to make a decision. Um, and, and, and am I right in thinking that the decision to want EEC memory means then you have to obviously get a motherboard that supports it and, and then also a Xeon processor? Or is it, you know, do i-series work in the motherboards that do typically support EEC memory? I would do a little bit of research on that, but lots of people use just your your vanilla i3, i5, i7 CPUs with ECC RAM in those motherboards. It might vary on the CPU, but it should be possible to use a lot of the off-the-shelf processors with ECC RAM. Interesting, because that's kind of, you know, because I, I was initially looking at Xeon because of this and also the fact of it being a server and kind of experimenting with that. But I am finding that maybe the price premium of having a Xeon, you know, maybe compared to like, because I've noticed like the new i5, I think it's the 7600K, quite nice. And it's that now the i5 series, we've all got hyper threading and things like that. So these kind of things are like, it's very much like weighing up in its favor of being actually this looks like quite a nice CPU, a nice kind of budget to work with just wondering you know i think we did touch about it a little bit last episode but obviously you know xeons are kind of more pushed towards the fact of being a server grade you know server hardware and then maybe looking at the i series as maybe more desktop but in builds such as like a nas or a home nas setup and stuff are, are there much differences like would would it be much greater to you know get a xeon of a comparable maybe spec as an i series or is it really the fact of you know xeons obviously are probably built better in quotes and you know maybe have a bit more stress testing and things like that before they actually get shipped out yeah i would i would think that the that the xeon cpu in the home lab server is a a really neat bragging point to your your fellow you know your fellow home lab server enthusiasts there's now there's gonna there's always gonna be a guy who's out there doing enterprise grade stuff at his home for fun but i i would think for the majority of everybody you're playing i I'm gonna say consumer grade cpu is going to be absolutely fine and i would think yeah i would think that you should probably only go with the xeon cpu unless you know, you found a, like I did, you know, you found, you found used ones whose specs meet your, meet your criteria and they're inexpensive. I wouldn't pay the premium of the, the brand new Xeon CPU ever. You know, the, the Xeon CPUs I wound up putting in my home lab server are selling for like 40 or $50 on eBay right now. Their suggested retail price was like $1,500. So, you know, one CPU would have been more than I spent on the entire machine by 50%. That's insane, isn't it? Like kind of, you know, you mentioned that your home lab, you know, you, you looked and you found a blog post that kind of discussed, you know, building this kind of system. And what did it kind of all come up to? Because I know that obviously that your, your DIY NAS build this year did kind of uh, stretch the, uh, the wallet a little bit with kind of its choice in CPU and motherboard. Yeah, yeah. When I talked about setting priorities 
uh, when I built that nest this year, I didn't put cost on there at all. That just, it wasn't one of my priorities. And you can, you can tell by the spec sheet that that's, that's wound up being the case. My home lab machine, I didn't really set a concrete budget, but you know, the, the blog post that I'd stumbled upon, it said, Hey, you can build a, a 32 thread Xeon, dual Xeon, desktop computer for under a thousand dollars so that's kind of what what i wound up working from was around a thousand dollars i think it wound up coming to about about 900 bucks wow that's amazing isn't it i mean that that and that those are the steals that you can get out of secondhand hardware you know if you, if you do spend a little bit of time and invest a little bit you know kind of understanding what's out there and things like that one thing actually and again like speaking about like cpus maybe in more particular is the concept of overclocking and you hear it a lot and you actually see it a lot you know kind of like you know these, these cpus are overclockable you know and like you know you can get like gain a little more speed out of them and you also then have to consider like the heat and things that are generated based on that i'm just wondering kind of what is then overclocking and like have you had any experience in overclocking cpus um well overclocking is basically you know the the cpu runs at a, a certain speed and that's set by a base frequency and a multiplier and I can't I can't recall all of them off of the top of my head but you know you you multiply x times y and that's how you get to 3.3 gigahertz and those are things that you can adjust in the computer's bios or it's been a long time since I did it you actually physically did it on the motherboard via jumpers it, it's been quite a while but by changing those, you can say, hey, this, this CPU, which is, you know, labeled to be, you know, 3.2 gigahertz, you know, by adjusting this one setting, I can, I can overclock it and make it run like it's 3.4 gigahertz instead. And sometimes that works really well. And sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, you wind up having system instability and crashes. And I mean, I guess, I guess there's a chance that you could go, you know, way overboard and and damage a component, but I don't I don't think that's the I don't think that happens all that frequently. So it's it's really then kind of um using hardware over essentially overusing hardware. Exactly. You're basically when you read when you read through people's overclocking guides, the people who do it right, they're essentially seeing how much they can get away with. And then when they've reached that point where they can't get away with any bit more, they, you know, they step back a step or two and then just kind of leave it set. But yeah, you're exactly right. They wind up, they wind up running something outside of its specifications of what, of what the manufacturer says that it can run. And people probably do it with a decent amount of success. I mean, they do it with a decent enough, enough success. There's, there's a community. I mean, there are communities built of people who are, who are overclocking their hardware. I suppose it's another win that you can get you know you can get a cpu that maybe has a set hardware you know it has a set speed but then you're able to you know speed it up and overclock it to a, a speed that is comparable to another cpu that would cost more and things like that it's a it's another win area and and, and one other interesting thing and i don't know whether i'm right in thinking this but you know it's, it's obviously big manufacturers like intel and stuff you know making different cpu sets you know is, is quite expensive on the actual when they're actually building them they may build them to a certain spec but actually almost 
clock them or lock them at a certain speed and and is that kind of some of the things that people do is that they actually you know maybe they have an i3 series processor x but actually it internally it may be a certain other processor but you're able to unlock it because it's just hardware it's, it's software locked or or am i completely off on, on that one yeah in the i guess it would be the firmware in the bios in the firmware is where and i don't know all throughout the years there have been different attempts by you know, Intel and AMD and the like to to prevent overclocking. And every time some intrepid tinkerer finds a way around it, sometimes it's been you know complicated. Like you have to make a you have to make a modification to the CPU or or a, well, I can't remember which CPU it was. There was there was a CPU where you had to use like a lead pencil and you would short out. You would just draw on top of the on top of the processor. You would connect two leads by coloring on it with the pencil. But yeah, I think for the most part, it's done now in the BIOS and hardware manufacturers, you know, motherboard manufacturers are happy to help overclockers and sell sell hardware to those folks who are willing to do that. So they they design their BIOSes and whatnot to you know to cater to these to overclockers. And that that winds up making it easier for everybody why doesn't everyone then overclock is it, are there obviously you've mentioned that you know you can damage it and stuff but what are like the common considerations that you know maybe i buy a cpu i overclock it what can i expect is it a shorter lifespan heat problems and things like that yeah you're running it harder and faster than it's supposed to go so you're going to have heat you're going to have more heat probably than if you've been running it at the recommended settings and heat is on the top top five enemies of computing hardware heat is like number one or two i mean it's a it's bad news so you might you might have a shorter lifespan you might have more you know more system instability or yeah problems like that you'll probably if you if your cpu were to die unexpectedly overnight and you called up whoever you know was providing your support and say yeah, my CPU died overnight and I was overclocking it. You're probably not going to get, yeah, you're probably going to avoid the warranty. But then again, it, I suppose it's, again, it's that gamble like secondhand hardware where you can probably get a bit of a, a bit of a steal out of it. If you can find an, an CPU that you can overclock to a certain speed, uh, as opposed to buying that hardware up front. Yeah, it's a potential win, but I think, I think in recent years that win has gotten smaller. At one point, you know, you were, you were overclocking CPUs that they were, I don't know about doubling or tripling, but they were running way, way faster than they than they were designed. Um, I think in general, the trend has been, you know, kind of downwards. Your return on overclocking today is way less than overclocking, say, 10 years ago or five years ago. Um, and that's, that's probably the reason that I, I just don't do it anymore. It it seems like there's diminishing returns on that with every generation of CPU. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and if the, if it's going to be a shorter lifespan, or you're going to avoid the warranty and more heat that you're going to have to handle, uh, as you say, it's just yeah, there's no point in doing it if you're not going to get. I mean, if you were to get like these double or triple clock speed, you know, improvements, that's just an insane win, and that actually is then you know in the hardware when you're purchasing it but if it's not that and it is just a slight bump but you're kind of putting it in, in a risk factor it's the, it's the pros and cons i guess isn't it yeah yeah it's definitely a risk reward decision that you have to make 
Um, it, are there other components? Because I'm thinking like in RAM and stuff as well. Because I mean, obviously we've spoken about comparing CPUs, but like, how do you compare RAM, or do, do you have do you kind of look into RAM and and like the speed that that's working at, and and can you overclock RAM? Well, overclocking the CPU almost always overclocks every everything to a little bit. I mean, you're essentially you're running the CPU at a higher frequency, and everything that that uses the CPU then is also running at a higher frequency. I don't know about individually overclocking the RAM to higher speeds. That's a that's not going to be an area that I'm I'm going to be able to shed a whole lot of light on. But just about anything, it seems like anything is overclockable. Your your GPU is overclockable. Um, I over I overclock one thing and that's it, and that's that's my monitors. Um, they're, they were set up at a, I think a 60 hertz refresh rate. And I've found that my monitors, well, my monitors at one point supported up to 120 hertz of a refresh rate. And now one of my monitors doesn't like 120 hertz anymore. So I've had to back it down to, to 96. And it's probably backed down to 96 because I've, stressed it out and damaged it and that's why it doesn't do 120 anymore yeah because i was gonna i was gonna ask about that that probably is again it's that overclocking where you are using the hardware out outside of its kind of intended use exactly yeah but the gains that you get you know for what it was you know for you you obviously rolled the dice and you said you know it was what i wanted so it is i suppose it is a baby on a case-by-case basis does overclocking work for you as opposed to yes you should be overclocking things yeah yeah it's a Case by case and cost benefit. Um, you know, with, with the monitors that I'm using, I can't, they're a Kunix 2710, I think. They're a Korean off brand and I, I've never dug into it, but I kind of suspect that they're the panels that, you know, don't qualify for your really nice retina displays or whatever. They're the, they're the rejects off of that manufacturer pile and, they're really inexpensive and they're overclockable. So why not? I mean, I'm, I'm getting the equivalent of a really nice display. I spend a fraction of the money. I mean, those are, those are really, you know, displays get really expensive and these were hundreds of dollars compared to thousands of dollars. Absolutely. And I think that is exactly it. And then maybe focusing more like maybe in like hard drives and things like that. I feel like with secondhand hard drives and data protection and things like that, obviously RAM is, you know, volatile and in theory it shouldn't be storing anything. But the concept of maybe reusing a hard drive a bit scares me. Uh, you know, obviously if it's spinning disk as well, it's one of those other things. It could be, you know, you're wearing out the life of it. Have you ever used any secondhand hard disks or, or things like that? I would never, ever, ever buy a, a hard drive secondhand uh, for that exact reason. You said it. I mean, they spin, they spin at fifty four hundred or seventy two hundred RPM. Things that spin wear down. There's no getting around it. They can only, they're only going to spin so many times. So you're basically asking for it with a used hardware or a used hard drive. I think I would avoid a used hard drive pretty much at all costs. Yeah, I think that's that's the one thing that I put on is saying I'm probably wouldn't buy secondhand hard, you know hard drives and and to be honest with you, if I'm ever selling a PC, I typically say no hard drive included because I'm you know I keep the hard drive or destroy it because you just can't be trusted. You know, it's it's just better. It's, it's far better for your peace of mind to get rid of it. Yes, yeah, that's a that's a good point also. 
to be honest, I'm always amazed that, like, especially on these server setups and stuff, that they do provide hard drives with them. Pre, you know, like, oh yeah, we're providing with these, you know, with obviously used hard drives. And I do think maybe, I don't know whether they should. I think, you know, wouldn't it be better just to not include the hard drives and get rid of them just for the fact of data protection or something? Yeah, well, that is that is interesting. You know, depending on where that hard drive originated, it's entirely possible that at some point it stored data that was important or critical to a business's needs i'd be astonished if you know anybody was selling off those hard drives those probably wind up in a a shredder or you know get drilled through or i mean there's lots of ways to destroy a disc but i would expect that most you know most corporations are disposing of storage and not trying to resell it on the the secondhand market Absolutely, because I know you can do like in quote secure erasing and stuff, which it will rewrite the you know every bit on the actual disc. But there's still a hundred percent. You know, I'm sure there are ways of being able to recover it. And what was if that went wrong and you didn't actually you know erase everything? It's just the risk. The risk of it is not is not worth it at all. There, there's some, there's definitely some risk there, and I would imagine that most companies are are weighing that before they before they decide how they wind up disposing of a hard of a hard drive. It's interesting to see, actually, if, I mean, I suppose like solid state drives is, is a similar thing, actually, you know, but maybe to not as extent. I mean, obviously, the, it's not spinning, so you're not getting that. But again, you've only got a certain amount of writes that you can do to, to hardware such as that. So it's probably in, it's in the same ballpark. It's a yeah, it's a it's a different kind of problem, but it pretty much results in the same thing. I wouldn't buy a used SSD either. Moving on to, and we actually touched upon this a little bit again last episode, to discussing the CPU a little bit more and really kind of like the difference. Because you, you mentioned a 32 thread, eight cores, I think it was you mentioned. And you said, you know, you can build this massive machine. And, and so what actually then is the difference between those two concepts? Okay, well, on your CPU, you've got different computing units and that physical, like physical cores. That's what you see. It's what you see advertised. Each core is a, a physical, it's a little mini CPU, actually, just on the die. And then all of those work in parallel. And then each core, through hyper-threading, is able to simultaneously process two different instructions. And an instruction is, or threads. I mean, so you've got two threads per core via hyper-threading and multiple cores. And in my case, in my home lab CPU or a home lab computer, you've got multiple CPUs. So you've got, in my computer, I've got two CPUs with eight cores each, and then each being able to do 16 threads, because each core is capable of two threads simultaneously. And add it all together, that's 32 threads. That's really interesting. And because and, you mentioned hyper-threading there, and, and I've, I've looked into it a little bit, and it, it does seem, as you say, I know you, but you know it's like a bit of black magic going on there. You know, it's this kind of like surreal thing where, and actually people can see it, if you go into your task manager, you, you assume maybe you've got an i3, you know, with two physical cores, but it's coming up as four cores. And it's like actually two of those are logical, or it's four, you know, it's, it's two real cores and then two logical cores or virtual cores, they call them. And I'm just wondering, you know, is, there a, is there a technology that on the AMD side or is hyper-threading only an Intel kind of technology that's being used in those CPUs? I would be astonished if there's not something similar to hyper-threading on AMD. I don't, I don't know right off the top of my head, but I would, I would imagine either that they've got something equivalent or they're licensing hyper-threading from Intel. 
Yeah, because it, it just seems like such a great technology. And, and the more I read into it and like the YouTube video, I'll put some in the show notes and stuff, kind of the things I've been looking into to try and understand it. And it's the idea that, you know, really, I suppose Pete, there's so many different analogies for it, but you say that it could do two actions at once. And really, it's just kind of sharing off that CPU, you know, within the CPU, it's got these different control units and it can use different ones of those in one cycle. If what something's trying to wait, access something from RAM, or you're trying to process a floating point number, it can do that at the same time. I think I'm right in thinking that that's kind of what my my learning at this time has got to. That's my understanding also. It seems like a great win. I think they have mentioned that there are some things. I mean, there's a couple of like thing, key things you need to consider. And, and one is the worst thing actually is if your OS doesn't support hyperthreading or doesn't understand what hyperthreading is because it will assume, oh, I've got four cores. I can just use the first two. But actually, it really needs to know that, you know, if it's trying to do something, it's better off using if there's real cores available as opposed to using a virtual logical core. Obviously, the operating system needs to understand it. And as well as I think they mentioned that there's a bit of heat, more heat because of, again, it's working the CPU a little bit more. Maybe it's doing something similar to overclocking. I suppose it's actually intended in this regard, but it's that kind of overworking the CPU to try and get as much efficiency out of it and no downtime. Yeah. But with when we were like we were talking about, I think we were talking about RAID. We definitely talked about RAID last time. We talked about ZFS and things like that. You mentioned actually that you use a ZFS platform and things like that. And I've noticed actually, and this was something when I was going through the Reddit's, go through home server and stuff like that. People were mentioning this this technology or this operating system called UnRaid. Uh, and I thought I added it into the show notes and you were fortunate enough, you know, you kind of said, oh, yeah, but, you know, I know of it. I'm just wondering, what is Unraid then? Because it seems so good, too good to be true. It's it's almost like a Drobo kind of thing where it's, you know, it's just chuck anything at it and it will work. Yeah, well, and that that's a pretty good comparison, I would think, with the Drobo. With Unraid, as I understand it, Unraid's a, I guess, effectively, it's a, a competitor of FreeNAS. It's a standalone distribution. I don't know what operating system it's built on. But the advantage, one of the advantages is that you just throw disks at it and it maintains one, it maintains one drive for, for parity and it allows you to mis- mismatch any size drive that you want and it makes it work. And that, that's really my extent of it. I don't know, you know, I don't know what it does if you've got 11 really small drives and one real big drive, how much, you know, how efficient it is at giving you all of that storage space back. But one of the drawbacks of your traditional RAID-based systems is that they're all built on like-size drives being added and replaced at a matching in the in the matching pairs. So if you've got, let's say you've got ten four terabyte drives, and you replace one of those four terabyte drives with an eight terabyte drive, you won't be able to reuse that extra space on that eight terabyte drive until all of the other ten ter- or four terabyte drives. Are replaced as well, um, and that I don't think that that's a drawback of the Unraid system. And you know, in and what people have commented on my blogs and I've seen written about is that it's pretty popular because of this reason, isn't it? And I, I think it seems too good to be true, almost. You know, because with Raid, it kind of makes sense. You know, you, you understand that. You know, it's like, well, yeah, obviously everything has to be the same because I'm mirroring, or you know, you can kind of think of it as like even with a parity drive, sharing out this data available in two different spaces. So to have this kind of, as you say, like maybe ten small hard drives and then one big drive, where does it all go? I'm sure that there are some shortcomings there. I put it in quote shortcomings because any gain you get out of it isn't is an amazing win. The one the one thing that I read about it that made me nervous is that it only sounds like there's one drive's worth of parity data so now i don't i don't know this to be a fact 
we'd need to we'd need to dig into it a little bit. But what you know, what would happen if you lost two drives at the same time? Absolutely, and that's what you said. Raid six last time was you know people have gone away from raid five just because of that, and the fact that the hard drives are getting bigger and bigger, and we're getting you know configurations that we really do want to have two parities. Yep. Well, and keep in mind that hard drives wear out. So let's say you bought eight brand new hard drives and you never had a single problem. And then as those eight hard drives got old, one wore out and, and failed. Well, when you replaced it, you know, you would have to use those other seven, you know, those other seven drives to rebuild that eighth drive and repair the, repair the array. Those other seven drives have to work harder to rebuild the array and if they're all already aging as it is you know you're putting them under more stress and you're more likely to have another failure during that rebuild so that's why i prefer the you know raid 6 or raid z2 on is what they call it on zfs so that you have you have a second drive's worth of parity data so if you happen to lose that drive during that rebuild you wouldn't be you know up a creek you know what that's a really good point because your people think oh what's the bad you know that's such bad luck to have a, a failed drive and then during the repair of the, that failed drive you get another one but as you say the hardware is working harder and if they're of equal kind of age this could happen you could actually just have this horrible toppling effect where every time you're trying to repair and i suppose once you've i don't know actually with a raid 5 setup like if i in turn maybe then if i do actually have double parity you know remember two hard drives fail so i have one fail i then decide okay yeah i can repair that now uh during that that one fails can i get back my storage like can i get back at least what i can get back of it obviously it won't be 100 percent, but or is it completely gone now is there all or nothing kind of thing to it i would i would say plan to be rebuilding that 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 everything would be gone. If you have RAID 5 and you lose one drive, and then you lose another drive while you're rebuilding it, you're going to have a really hard time recovering any of the data off of that. I don't want to say that it's impossible, but you should plan as if it would be impossible. You know, my, my kind of thinking now is go RAID 6... And also not take that as being a backup, because I think that's where some people, even with the Drobo, kind of think of it as, you know, oh, yeah, it's fine because I'm using a Drobo or I'm using this kind of RAID system. You know, it's my backup for me. It's like, no, that's just dealing with the hardware side. You know, locally, you really need backups, external backups as well. And, you know, the beautiful thing of something like ZFS is it deals with bit rot as well. And these kind of things, which RAID, you know, RAID on its own doesn't deal with. Yeah, RAID in any form is only minimizing your downtime. You can survive losing a hard drive without having to, you know, shut everything down and repair and recover. You can, I mean, you can do that on the fly, but it is not, it is not a backup. It is not a substitute for a backup. It doesn't offer you any sort of protection against any of the, the number of things that, that backups protect you against. You know, I, I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm my own worst enemy, you know, I'm going to go in there and delete that file that I shouldn't have deleted. And RAID is going to let me do that every time I try and do it. Is it, yep, you want to delete a file? Okay, it's deleted. It's gone forever. Oh, wait, sorry. I didn't mean that. The only saving me from that is having a backup somewhere else hidden away from myself so that I can't do, do that damage there. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that you've got FreeNAS there and, you, you know, you currently use FreeNAS. 
Um, obviously, there's Unraid, but are there are there any other distributions that you've used in the past before you settled on FreeNAS, or was that really the first one and the only one you've kind of looked into for your NAS builds? FreeNAS was the one that I was aware of when I went to build my NAS, and I kind of went into it with, well, I'm going to try FreeNAS out, and if there's anything I don't like about it, I'll consider one of the alternatives. And I've I've personally loved FreeNAS. There are a number of NAS-driven distributions like FreeNAS. There's a NAS for free. There's Open Media Vault. There is Xpenology. I don't know how you say it. I know how to type it, but I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, it which is essentially a port or a version of what Synology puts on their off-the-shelf NAS machines. And I'm sure there, I'm sure there are others that I'm, that I'm forgetting. Um, but yeah, that's a, there are a lot of competitors to FreeNAS and I've tried a, I've tried a few of them and liked a few of them, but not enough to replace FreeNAS in my opinion. Yeah, because I mean, is FreeNAS the only one that gives you ZFS, or do so some of the others? There's a NAS for free, which is a a fork of FreeNAS of its own, and it it supports ZFS. And there are operating systems out there that support ZFS also. If you wanted to, if you were up for it, and you wanted to build a server from scratch and put what components you want on it, you could get ZFS without using you know, FreeNAS or NAS for free. But what FreeNAS, to me, the the beauty of FreeNAS and NAS for free and these other NAS distributions is it's got a nice web UI that minimizes the amount of time that you have to spend at the command line. And it it essentially winds up opening it up to guys like me who who probably don't have that much experience, you know, with FreeBSD, which is what FreeNAS runs under. Or, you know, these other Linux distributions that might be running underneath these NAS distributions and kind of just lets you set it up like an appliance rather than, you know, building something from scratch. If you had a, you know, a FreeBSD install, you could go out and you could stick FreeBSD and you could, you could download all of these components that you need and you could set up your own server from scratch. I don't know about you, but it would take me forever to do that i mean it would be it would be frustrating i would be learning i'd have to be learning a whole bunch of new things and while i'm sure it would be worth it in the long run to to learn all of that stuff i'm not sure if it would if i would be very pleasant to be around you know between between start and finish and that's that's really what i like about you know free nas and and the other things is that it, it really just turns it into an appliance where you where you sit down, you boot it up, you go to a web UI, you turn things on, you configure things, and it does all of the command line stuff for you behind the scenes, and it and it works, and that's that's a huge relief. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one thing I've just, I've just thought of actually. So you know, you've got ZFS, but there's another one called ButterFS. And I've completely put you on the spot here. I just want have you ever any experience with ButterFS? I have no experience with ButterFS. Um, I am a I am aware that it exists. 
that's my kind of understanding at the moment. It's something that, I, you know, this is the thing. Once you go down this rabbit hole of starting to look into things, you start hearing terminology and you need different technologies. And it's something, you know, that, oh, maybe you give that a, a look. And people seem to be saying, you know, that's obviously got a lot of good potential as well. But I think for me at this moment in time, when I'm doing my build, I will be sticking with FreeNAS and ZFS. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They've been around forever and they're they're fundamentally sound. Brilliant. And and I couldn't have you on the show again without talking about something completely outside of all that, you know, of all the server stuff. Uh, you know, we, we, we spoke about the coffee last episode. And uh, this time I've got to talk about your foray into quadcopters. You, you seem to have built your own one or something crazy like that. Like what, what drew you to do something like that? It looks really cool. Well, the makerspace that I participate in here, we have a almost yearly event a trebuchet event uh people build their own trebuchets and we have a park that we go to and we launch pumpkins it's a lot like pumpkin chunkin but it's regional it's it's different and it's trebuchets only so gravity based siege weaponry and at our most at our most recent one last year one of the members brought out his his DJI Phantom quadcopter and he was demonstrating it it's an aerial photography quadcopter and it has some really cool features and he's just, he's quadcopter crazy. I mean, he's, he's got all of this stuff and he was talking to, he was talking to us and then he said, well, you know, you could, you could build something like this pretty, pretty easily and I really recommend it. And he, he pointed out, he said, you know, if you have a quadcopter, you're going to crash it. And the only way that you're going to be able to fix it is you're going to have to go to this manufacturer and buy their, just like, you know, with the Dell hardware, you have to buy their, their proprietary stuff. He said, or you could buy, you know, buy parts, these kits. They're all standardized. They're roughly equivalent. And if you break it, he, you know, he pointed at all the parts in the arm. It would be $10 to replace this, $15 to replace that. And, you know, another $10 to replace this and you'd have it fixed. And then he said, and if you're learning, you're going to break it. You're absolutely going to break it. I mean, there's there's no way around it. You're going to break it. So why not build it so you know how to fix it rather than, you know, buy somebody else's design, break it, and then be stuck in this cycle of learning, breaking, and repairing. So what he did is he led a class at our at our makerspace and he basically sent us part a parts list and said, You buy these parts and then one weekend We'll get together, we'll build it, we'll configure it, and I'll give you the, you know, the real quick tutorial on how to fly a quadcopter. And ever since then, I've been, we've been nuts about quadcopters. I mean, I, we just, uh, we've been doing a, a bi-weekly quadcopter flying event where we've got four or five people out there, and it seems like we have a dozen quadcopters between the four or five of us, and we all, we have spectators that show up just because they're interested. It's a it's a whole lot of fun. I've written I've written a couple quadcopter blogs here the last the last month, and I've got well, it seems like an unending list of other quadcopter topics I want to write about in the future. Really interesting, and it is a lot harder. As you say, things will break. Uh, it's it's not out the uh, out of the question there that things will break. Yeah, you. I uh the first the batteries you get about well, it depends on the size of the battery, but you get about you know, five to 10 minutes of a flight time out of a battery. The first four or five times we went, I crashed and broke something before expending my first battery. Oh, no. Like, I mean, literally, I was in a cycle of 
fly it, crash it, be done for the day, order replacement parts, fix it, fly it, crash it, be, and maybe I'm a bad pilot. I should, I hope so, but I, I would plan, I would plan for that because it's a, it's a lot harder than, than the people I've seen it make it look. It's one of those skills, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. People make it look too easy, which makes it too enticing to think, oh, yeah, it's fine. Well, where do you actually fly it then? Do you, do you fly it in a nice clear area, like a nice like green grass, or do you kind of try and maneuver in and out of like busy places? Yes, we, we do both. Um, when, we've, when we've been learning, we've gone to you know, nice big open parks you know, where there's no people around, and we usually have somebody who kind of functions as a spotter so that you know, we can stay away from other people. Um, but we've, we've got guys who have really fast drones that are really maneuverable that, you know, they go down into a, not exactly a, a forest, but a wooded area with sparse trees and fly in and out, you know, around the tree trunks or up over branches or between, between things. I mean, we even have, you know, little tiny micro drones that we fly, you know, in, in houses or, you know, around, around yards, we try and look for different, different challenges of different environments. Absolutely. That sounds so much fun. Are all these have you built then, or have you bought any, any, any kind of pre-built ones? We've got a, a few DIY designs, uh, but we've gotten to the point now where we're, we're getting comfortable enough that we're also buying some of the pre-built ones to, you know, kind of save on some of that, some of that labor. No, absolutely. And I think, as you say, it's a great learning. It's, it's for, I mean, learning what the technology is like, building it up and really, you know, yeah, breaking it and being able to fix it. It's a lot more confident in, you know, the fact of actually using it. Because if you're buying this really expensive piece of machinery and then you're worrying to actually try and learn and use it, you're not going to get the, the, the enjoyment out of it as you would if you could just, you know, it's just something that I can play around with. Exactly. Yeah. I I don't care if I wreck it because I know I can fix it is kind of my, well, can I fit in there? And then you decide, well, yeah, I can fix it if I can't. So I'm going to just go ahead and try it. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much again, Brian, for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, it's it's really interesting. Last episode was great. Today was great. It's, it's so much fun talking about server stuff and, and just any, everything. Yeah. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. No, brilliant. Well, audience, it's been another great episode and we'll speak to you again next week. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.